Well, we are on a journey through the Bible. <laughs> Go figure. And what we're doing is we're seeing that the, uh, the whole book is really one big story about one great Savior. And uh, if you have kids actually in our nursery, in our five-year-old and, and under group, they're actually learning the same things we're learning. Um, uh, I took on a, a new adventure recently uh, when we started this series that I was writing the curriculum for our nursery, the teaching curriculum, and it's right along the same lines. Um, and so hopefully they're enjoying it. I've enjoyed writing it. Hopefully they're enjoying it. Um, as I mentioned, that one, one quick plug I want to make before we jump into our sermon for the morning. Um, we have a lot of children. I don't mean just me. I don't mean just me. I do mean me, um, but not just me. Uh, we collectively have a lot of children. Do you guys know that? And uh, that's a wonderful thing. It means we've got some young families that, uh, that are, are connecting and joining us. And we have a lot of kids. And it's a great blessing. And so um, I want to encourage you, if you consider Mountain View home, every adult in the room, if this is your church, I want to encourage you to, to um, volunteer. Every one of us. Um, if every one of us would commit a, a time to, to plug in with our students, with our kids, that is, uh, it would spread the load and you would get to see and be a part of discipling up the next generation. Can you imagine what Mountain View is going to look like in 10 years? Uh, just this week, uh, somebody was messaging me about um, how old do the kids have to be to go to youth camp? And I got to thinking, well, my daughter's about to be that age. And it was kind of like, oh, my goodness, you know, like. I'm not quite ready for that. But then I got to thinking, uh, at her age, there's 10 students her age that are getting ready to move up into the youth ministry. 10. And then there's more uh, as the age goes down, even more than that. Just a couple weeks ago, we had about 70 kids. That's wild, right? Um, praise God for that. But I do want to encourage you, even right now, I'd like for you to... Um, to take the time to volunteer, to sign up online. If maybe you're a grandmother, you can rock a baby. That would be a huge help. Maybe you could sit and tell a five-minute Bible story to some three- and four-year-olds. That would be a great blessing. Maybe you would be good with games with our uh, older kids, or you could just help keep them from hurting one another. That would be a great blessing. But if we all kind of share the load, we get to be a part of that together, of discipling up the younger generation. So... Just want to plug that for you. Um, all right. So here we go. After Jesus rose from the dead, he did some teaching. He spent some time with his disciples and he taught them how to read the Bible. He taught them that their scriptures that they had aren't just uh, scrolls of do's and don'ts. It's not just a rule book. It's actually a book about Jesus. Everything was written to reveal who God is and specifically who God is in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible is about him from cover to cover. We've talked about this now for a couple of weeks, uh, but last week we talked from Genesis chapter one and chapter two, the story of creation. And what we what we realize is that Jesus actually created and rules over everything. That he is our Sabbath rest. And through him, we come into a marriage union, a relationship with God Almighty. And today I want us to dig into Genesis chapter 3. 
And I promise we'll pick up the pace along the way. We're never going to make it through if we keep going just one chapter at a time. But in Genesis 3, what we see is deception and disobedience take center stage. And again, Christ on every page. Would you stand with me as we read from Genesis chapter 3? I would like to read the whole chapter together. So we'll read quickly Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and it was and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, that serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins 
and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and at the east of of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way. To the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask you to open our eyes, open our hearts, to see and believe that this is all about Jesus. That even the failures of Adam point us to the great successes of Christ. Help us, Lord, to see the wonder of your redeeming work across the span of history. God, it's my prayer today that if someone is listening that needs to know Christ and be saved from their sin, would you open their heart to believe and help us all to be transformed by the good news that Jesus is the true and better Adam. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the story of Adam and Eve is possibly one of the most familiar stories of all. We uh, we tell this story to our children uh, right now. They're doing a coloring page of Adam and Eve. And maybe you've done something like that with your kids. But this story, it is how we explain the beginnings of humanity and the brokenness of our world. It all comes back to this, doesn't it? In this story, we see the slithering schemes of Satan in the serpent. We see how he tempts Eve. He questions God's word and God's character. And Eve caves under the pressure. She sees that the fruit of the tree is it's good for food. And she wants what it might have to offer So she eats. She offers to her husband and he eats. And Adam and Eve directly disobey God. So the first people were given total freedom. They had daily communion with their creator. They had everything they could ever want or need with only one restriction. Don't eat from that tree. And even with only one law to break, man is a lawbreaker. The Bible says in Romans that through Adam... Sin entered the world and death through sin. Genesis 3 is the record of that fall. We call it the fall, right? I mean, we have creation, the fall, redemption and consummation. That's the overarching story of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, by the third chapter of the book, we've already seen God's good creation Fall into sin and rebel against him. 
Well, not only do we see the fall, but we see the fallout. What's the ramification, the immediate reaction and response to sin? Well, the Adam and Eve, they see their nakedness and they feel ashamed. You remember how Genesis 2 ended? The very last verse of Genesis 2? And they were naked and unashamed, right? This was God's good creation. He had put these people together to enjoy one another and enjoy communion and fellowship with Him. But sin inverts all of that. And immediately they recognize their nakedness and feel ashamed for it. Even what God made to be good and enjoyed is tainted by sin. Adam and Eve, they try to cover their shame and their nakedness. They sew fig leaves together to try to cover. Now, sin will make you do some stupid things, right? So fig leaves, not real bright. Those things are itchy. Then what do they do? They hear the Lord coming. Now, remember, the creator of all the world is coming. And they think, let's jump behind those bushes, right? Not real bright. So they hide their nakedness, their shame with fig leaves. They hide from God. This is what sin does in us. And then when God says, what happened? What do they do? They blame. It was that woman. That you gave me. Adam was pretty bold, right? Eve. It was that serpent. Blaming, blaming, blaming. Maybe you've experienced some of these same kinds of things where we try to cover or hide or blame. Isn't it funny how the same fallout happens with our sin today? Well, then comes the judgment of God. God immediately responds to sin with some of the most strict judgment you've ever seen. Now, we ought to think about this because it points to the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. One sin and all of this curse from God, all of this judgment from God. Let's look at them quickly. The serpent is first on the list. The Lord speaks directly to the snake. He curses that snake to be the worst among all the creatures, all the animals. It's now to slither on its belly, eating the dust for the rest of its life. Humans and serpents will hate each other. But then embedded in this curse, there's a promise. God says of the woman's offspring, there's one coming who will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. God doesn't even finish cursing a serpent without introducing the Redeemer. Judgment hasn't even been decreed for Adam and Eve before God speaks the glimmer of gospel hope for them. This is good. That even God's judgment is couched in his mercy. The woman, judgment for the woman, she will endure great pain in childbirth. Now, I've never given birth myself. Apparently men can do that these days. 
But I've never done that. I have been there for it. This curse is true. I promise you. It's not. It's painful. And then what's the next part? And the woman will have strife against her husband. She will um, want his role. Remember, God created her to be a helpmate for Adam. But now that's been reversed. She wants to be the head. And he will rule over her. There's strife between husband and wife. What was beautiful has now been tainted by sin. Well, what about judgment for the man? For the man, the ground is cursed. Remember, he was he was put in the garden to work. The garden work was a good thing, right? It was a good thing until sin. And now God says it will be difficult for you to work the land. You will work and by the sweat of your face. You will toil and work and the earth, even the earth, Romans 8 says, will groan against you with thorns and thistles. So you will work hard and the earth will work against you. Anybody feel that in your job sometimes that you're busting it and everything's working against you? You can thank Adam for that. But then comes the final blow like this is like the, the, the hammer on the nail. God says this, you will return to the dust from which you came. So essentially, here's the message. Your life is going to be filled with struggle just to survive, just to eat bread and eat plants. It's going to cause you sweat and toil and work and everything's going to be against you. And in the end, you're going to die anyway. This is terrible. I want you to see what happens next. It's remarkable. In verse 20, there's a massive pivot from judgment to mercy. Adam, up to this point, when we talk of Eve, we just talk about her as the woman. We get to Genesis 3.20 and she gets a name. Now, what has just happened is the woman was deceived by the serpent, took from the forbidden fruit, ate of it, gave it to her husband, he ate of it, and pretty much everything was ruined. Are we on the same page? And then Adam decides to name her. Now, I don't know what names you would have come up with. But the mercy of this husband to his wife, he names her Eve. The name Eve means life giver. Mercy. Then together, Adam and Eve are clothed by God himself. They tried to cover. They tried to hide. It was unsuccessful. So God clothes them with what? What did he, what did he clothe them with? Skins of animals. We get the first portrait of God's plan to cover sin, to atone for sin is through blood sacrifice. Somebody has to die for your sin to be covered. But God himself steps into their shame and he clothes them. Don't miss the mercy of this moment. The God who just said your whole life is going to be a struggle and you're going to go back to the dirt. It's death for you. 
Come here and put these clothes on. This is the most beautiful, merciful God whose holiness will not allow him to overlook sin, but his love and mercy presses right into their shame. So before we even finish the third chapter of the Bible, we see a God who is good and powerful as creator. He is holy in that not even one sin will be excused. He is just in that he will not overlook it, even for those he loves the most. And he is merciful in that he will make a way to cover their shame. Through the shedding of blood, the Lord covers the sins of his people. So we see judgment, mercy. And now there's one final picture that maybe up to uh, your reading up to this point. This has always been confusing for me. But there's one final picture and it's that of exile. Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. You ever thought, what's going on here? I mean, as broken people, they're banished to live outside of paradise. Away from the tree of life into the broken world that they have caused. And I want you to see that even this judgment is merciful. Think for a moment. To live in the presence of God as a sinner would mean immediate incineration. And God quickly rushes to banish them from his presence. It is judgment, but it is mercy. He is delaying their death. If they stayed in in his presence, in the holy presence of a holy God as sinners unatoned for, their sin has not been forgiven, washed away. If they stayed in his presence, they wouldn't last a minute. And so he puts them out. He banishes them from the garden. Well, then to be kept from the tree of eternal life. This is a really odd imagery here. But to be kept from the tree of life, which apparently gives eternal life, is also an act of judgment and mercy. Think for a moment. To live eternally and separated from God is the very definition of hell. And so God is again limiting their suffering. He is shielding them from eternal suffering. And the flaming sword, that imagery is powerful. We pick it up again in Revelation. And what you find is that Jesus himself is here as the guardian of the presence of God. But we must look at this image of of an angel and this flaming sword swinging like this. And Adam and Eve have been put outside of paradise. And maybe they turn and look and they're like, oh, I wish we could get back in there. I would love to go back in there. But who, who among us, like who could make a way through that flaming sword of God's wrath? Who could get us back through so that we could be reconciled to him again? 
We need a rescuer. We need someone like Adam, but better. The Apostle Paul looks back to creation and the story we've just read in Genesis 3. And he writes about Adam. And in Romans 5, pick it up in verse 12 with me, if you will. Find your Bibles. We may put it on the screen, but in Romans chapter 5. And in verse 12 and following, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Don't be confused. Verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now listen to what he says here. This phrase is what I want you to lock in. Was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. He says Adam was a type of the one who was to come. When he says type, he means that Adam, Adam's character, who Adam is, he he helps us see Christ more clearly. When we look at Adam, we can look at him and compare him to Jesus and we can contrast him with Jesus. And as as Adam's story unfolds, we're getting glimpses of who our rescuer will be and how he will save us. So what I want to do today is I want to teach us about typology using Adam as the true and better Christ. I'm sorry, Christ as the true and better Adam. That's what typology is. And through this series, we're going to do that a lot. We're going to look at various characters, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David. And we're going to see that each of these characters in Scripture, now not all characters in the Bible, but some are meant to be types of Christ. And as they live and things that they do and stuff they experience is a type. It's a foreshadowing. It's a prefiguring of the Redeemer who is to come. Adam is a type. Paul himself directly says he's a type of the one who is to come. So when we talk typology, um, how do we dig into this? Well, it is simply comparison and contrast. All right. So let's let's work on this together. Uh, um, If you have the notes, I just left this blank so you can fill in as much as you want. Write as much as you want. But I hope that this will stir your affection as it has mine. Okay. so here's the question we're asking. How is Adam a type of Christ? I want to move quickly. Adam is a representative for all humanity. He is the figurehead of creation, the father of all people. Everyone can trace their heritage to Adam and Eve. Did you know that? We are all family because we have Adam as our ultimate Great, 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 great grandfather, right? Every one of us. He's the representative man for all humanity. Jesus 
is the representative man for a new humanity, a spiritual people. He's the figurehead of new creation, the father of God's people. Everyone who is born again comes into the family through faith in Jesus Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. From Romans 5, we can pull these truths out. Listen, here's what Paul does when he talks typology. Here's what he says. He says, Adam disobeyed God. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. Sin entered through Adam. But righteousness is available in Christ. Death for all men in Adam. All men die in Adam. But life, eternal life for all believers in Christ. Condemnation in Adam. But Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They are justified. Justification in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's another typological look. I'm not going to read this passage to you right now, but let me just paint these images. Here it is. The first Adam, the scripture says he's he's a living being of dust. He's taking from that Genesis 3 curse where he says, from dust you came and to dust you'll go. Adam is a living being of dust. The second Adam, a life-giving spirit from heaven. Jesus didn't come from the dust. He came from heaven and he came to give life. Adam, the, the first Adam, he bears the image of God, but marred by sin, right? Christ, listen, this is so good. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus doesn't just reflect the image of God. He's not like a a mirror reflecting the image of God. It's not it's not that Jesus is imaging God. He is God. (laughs) Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The father. Right. So what Jesus is saying is I didn't come just to reflect him. I am him. This is the true and better Adam. Adam was created in the image of God. Christ is God. Adam was given earthly dominion over the animals, the birds, etc. Jesus is given eternal dominion. Matthew 28, when Jesus, right before he ascends, he says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and where? On earth and where? Under the earth. Is there anything outside of his authority? No. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 it says of Christ. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. And Philippians 2.10 says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth at the name of Jesus. So listen. He doesn't just have dominion over animals and birds. Everything and everybody in heaven and on earth and under the earth submit to the dominion of Christ. He's the true and better. But wait, now listen, there's more. I feel like the the infomercial guy. Wait, there's more. Right. But if Adam is the true and better Christ, then who is Eve? 
Well, who is the bride of Christ? If Adam prefigures Christ, then Eve must prefigure the church. Now think about it. I want us to look back in Genesis for a moment. Genesis chapter 2. Let's just refresh our memory. Beginning in verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Pause. Did you realize that God created in six days, but he had a special work of creation for Eve? The church is a new creation work of God. I think about these parallels. This is beautiful. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. But the man gave names to the livestock, the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was no one fit for Adam. God had to do something creative. He makes, he creates a bride for Adam. And the church is a new created bride for Christ. Taking from Christ himself, from his very body, to create his bride. Do you hear some New Testament imagery there? That we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are his very own body. And the church is a helper fit for him. Listen to the parallels now. Adam was put to sleep. Christ put to death. Adam is scarred with a wound in his side where God took the rib to make Eve. Christ is wounded still with scars in his hands, feet and his side to create his church. Jesus's scars may be the only scars we see in glory. Eve is taken from Adam, but then God unites the two in a marriage of one flesh. And we too are from him and have been joined to him and made one spirit with the Lord. Ultimately, our union with Christ will be um, the great marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And think about this. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, right? And being united to Jesus means being fully known and fully loved. There's no more shame, no more imperfections to hide, no more insecurities, only freedom in his fearless love. This is beautiful, but this is just some, some of the ways that Jesus is the true and better Adam. We see Christ in these pages, the foreshadowing of a redeemer, a rescuer to come reading about the fall of man into sin. We see our own brokenness, our own failures because, well, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. Thank you, Willie. I couldn't resist. Appreciate that. I want you to look again. I want to finish with this. Look again at the uh, Genesis 3.15 gospel promise embedded in a curse. Here it is. When God curses the serpent, 
He promises one who is coming that will crush him. And I want you to see these three truths about Jesus. Here's the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, talking to the serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now make no mistake. Jesus is the one who is coming that this text is talking about. Jesus is the coming serpent crusher. But let's get three pretty general truths about who he will be, because that's what this is intended to do. This this little embedded promise is intended to give a glimmer of hope to the people of God that one day they'll be out from under this curse because there's a serpent crusher coming. So what are the three truths we see here? First, he will be a man like us. It says her offspring. Talking about a son of the woman. And then it says he. So a masculine pronoun is used. So we know it's going to be a man. But now it says the offspring of a woman. Now, that's interesting because all through the Old Testament scriptures, you you read about fathers begetting sons, right? It's father begets son, father begets son, father begets son. Why do we have the offspring of a woman here? Because who is Jesus' father? God. This is a tip of the hat to a virgin birth. Jesus had to come as the second Adam. We needed a representative man to live perfectly, to overcome the enemy in his life and his obedience. Everywhere that Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He is the true and better Adam who passed the test and whose obedient righteousness is accounted to us. He will be a man like us. Secondly, he will suffer for us. He will suffer for us. The scripture says you will bruise his heel. Bruising the the bite, the bruise of a serpent is the suffering of this savior. Now, suffering, if you remember, was the part of the story of redemption that no one seemed to see it coming. When Jesus died on the cross, it seemed all hope was lost. His disciples walking away from Jerusalem with their heads hung low, saying, we had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped, but their hopes had been dashed by his suffering. Now, they didn't pick up on the clue, apparently, that from the very first gospel clue, we see that he will be bruised. And Isaiah 53 that we read, it's by his wounds that we are healed. Crushed for our iniquities. Right? This is the the suffering of the Savior is a must. It is through his suffering and death that victory is secured. He was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. It is by his stripes, his wounds that we are healed. So he will suffer for us. And lastly, he will 
conquer our worst enemy. He will conquer our worst enemy. The Bible says he will crush your head. So the serpent is given his fate. And his fate rests under the foot of our king. The promise wasn't that God would get rid of the consequences. Or that he would simply sweep sin under the rug. No, God is just. He is holy. He is righteous. He cannot betray his own character. So he would have to come himself. The son of God. Jesus Christ humbled himself. Taking on the form of a servant. Being Found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2. Where Adam stood, listen, where Adam stood in the garden with a belly full of sin, Jesus knelt in the wilderness with a shrunken stomach from 40 days of fasting. Where Adam had failed, Jesus had succeeded. Adam had only one command to obey. But Jesus bore the full weight of the whole law. And what Adam failed to do, Jesus did perfectly. The truly righteous one endured the deadly bite of sin. So that death would forever lose its sting. Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. First Peter 318. So listen carefully, church. Unbeliever in the room, Christian, listen. Every person on the planet is in Adam. Our sin problem Is within us. You're not a sinner because you sinned. You sin because you are a sinner. It is your nature in Adam. And every person on the planet, no matter what ethnicity or race or language, whatever it may be, every one of us is in Adam. We have a global problem with sin. And the very first humans broke God's one law. They rebelled against him. They weren't content to be with God. They wanted to be their own God. This brokenness and sin nature has been passed down to each one of us. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. There are no innocent people. There are none good. No, not one. We have all been exiled out of the perfect presence of God. And we are banished to live this life in struggle and pain until we return to the dust. Oh, but God. But God. Our rescuer has come. The serpent crusher we've been waiting for, he's come. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he's come. He's crushed the head of the enemy. And if you come to Jesus, 
believing that his work of suffering at the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead now fully satisfies the righteous demands of God. If you come to this Jesus, you will find true and eternal rest for your soul. Sons and daughters of Adam, will you now come to Jesus and become a child of God? And Christian, may your faith be strengthened and your love for Christ be stirred by the good news that Jesus is the true and better Adam. This is the hope that we have to offer to a broken people. No matter your sin, Christ can be your obedience. Where sin abounds, grace all the more. Who can get through the flaming sword of God's wrath? Only Christ. And He's done it for you. You too can rest in our wonderful Savior.